You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. There is a mausoleum in Ravenna, Italy, that was built by the Emperor of Rome in the 6th century AD. To his sister, who died, her name was Gaia Placidia, it's a very well-preserved monument, and today many, many people go and visit it. Uh, many visitors, and most of the people that visit it go away very disappointed. And it's because when they read about it in the travel books and all of the mosaics and the statues and the art that's inside, they, they never seem to get the experience that they thought it would be and that they paid for. And the reason for that is because the curators of the museum have it in such a way that that there are spotlights that come on randomly in different parts of the mausoleum. And uh, they're just on for a few seconds, as I read about it, and and then they're off. And if you're not there and prepared to take some time to dwell there and live there uh, for an hour or two, you're not going to see the things that you saw pictures of in the travel book. And Sky Jathani, in his book called With, uses this mausoleum as an illustration of how some people approach Christian faith and God. They hear the stories, they decide they're going to check out faith for themselves. They visit a church or a Bible study, and and they have uh, maybe even a sincere desire to, to get to know God. But they look around and they don't take the time. to see the most important aspects of faith. And too often they leave without really ever having a vision of the Lord of glory, the very reason for the existence of the church. Unfortunately, they leave and they have a story to tell, and it ends up sounding a lot like a lot of stories people tell. I've tried that, and it's not for me. What did they try? What did they see? What did they experience? Certainly they did not experience the Lord of glory. They did not experience the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very center of church and life and Bible and anything else that's associated with Christian. Instead, perhaps they like anyone who would visit the mausoleum of Gaia Placidia, get into a church or a Bible study, and the stuffy air and the discomfort of close proximity to people who remain strangers make them look for the nearest exit, and they're saying, I'm not coming back. You see, there's a whole host of reasons of, of why people have maybe checked out the Christian faith and waited in the balance and found it wanting. But none of them has truly stayed or lingered long enough, pressed in close enough to have a vision of the Lord of glory. Because the sincere inquirer who has given light to Jesus Christ will never, never walk away with a yawn. This morning as we open up our Bibles in a minute, we're going to be introduced to a people in the Old Testament who thought they understood God. They, they thought they knew God. They really did. They were 
completely and utterly missing the glory of God and what He's all about. And the message this morning is really all about the destiny of all religious experience that is devoid of a personal and relational knowledge and experience of God. And uh, unfortunately, it's the experience of many people. As you can see in the insert in your bulletin, John Woodhouse says that we could characterize religion as human attempts to harness God's power. It's more refined form. It's called spirituality. How can we know what to do or to access the power of God? And all of the religions and all of the spiritualities that humans have devised are really attempts at guessing at how to access that God of power, that power of God. And it is here that all of us, I think, we need to make a confession that in some way all of us are guilty of of getting to know God for a religious experience, for what God can do for us instead of purely for knowing Him for seeing His glory, that we are guilty of seeking the power of God instead of the God of power, what He will give us, the gift rather than the giver. And so then when He doesn't deliver, it's, it's a crisis of faith that we come to. Again, quoting Sky Jathani, he says, Life with God is different because its goal is not to use God, its goal is God. He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we use. Instead, God Himself becomes the focus of our desire. So if you want to know more about this theme, join me now and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And uh, it's an extended story, but it's one well worth listening to. And if you are able and want to stand with me, please stand now as I tell you the story. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Philistines went out to fight against the, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Ephek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, All Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with the kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. 
And when he arrived there, Eli was sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because the ark, his, fear, his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were so set that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and the near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but she was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. May God bless his word to us today. Thank you. you may be seated. Let me say, first of all, that there's uh, great resources on our webpage connected to this sermon as well as those of you that have already asked for them in printed form, you can look at many more uh, commentaries, maps, charts, and so on. And one of them will tell you more about these people called the Philistines. And the interesting thing about the Philistines is that they, they arrive in this area of the land of Canaan about the same time as the Israelites themselves. These are not Canaanite peoples. They settled uh, on the coastal plains west of where Israel was in Canaan. And they became an arch enemy of Israel. They became the, the people that you're going to read about in the Samuel and Kings and, and, and Chronicles to come. And, and we're not sure who initiated this battle, but, but uh, the first battle comes and, and they suffer a great loss. 4,000 men are, are killed on the battlefield and this is devastating. The elders of Israel go back. Verse 3, we read, they ask the question, why did the Lord bring defeat to us before the Philistines? And uh, the nature of the question is, is absolutely right on. Literally, it could, have, could read this way. Why did the Lord strike us? That's a more literal rendering. We're reminded of the theocentric perspective that Bible times have. There's no debate about what's the cause of this or how this is going down or who's to blame. It's like when Hannah was unable to have a child and the scriptures say, because it was the Lord that closed her womb. There's an incredible, refreshing faith orientation that we get out of scripture that you're not going to get if you get the voices of everything else around you filling your brain and your heart with ideas that are not of God. And so whenever something like loss or pain or circumstance or, or death or sickness or whatever happens to us, the default reaction of a person of faith should be, God, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to teach me in this? It's a faith orientation that 
we see in the scriptures over and over again. But for lack of deeper reflection, the elders of Israel come up with the right question and then arrive at the wrong answer. It appears that their answer is on their minds even before the question is asked, as we read verses 3 and 4. Friends, this is a dangerous precedent to have, isn't it? You've all, you all know what I'm talking about, where you have something that you're holding up before God. And, and you're, saying, you're saying, God, I, I'm, not, I'm not clutching this. It's, it's yours. But you also know maybe the experience of having on your mind what you feel you want so strongly, even before the question is asked of the Lord, what's your will? You're saying, this is my will, God. And, and, and you, you, can need, you need to apply the scripture in your own heart and life and family the way you, you need to do that. But my responsibility, in, a, in addition to showing you how to do that, is to maybe cast a, a wider net over all of us as the body of Christ called White Ridge Baptist Church. And my responsibility is to point out that the most obvious application of this is to be very clear that I believe with all my heart we are asking the right question at the beginning of 2015. You saw it on the announcement slide. It's the question we're discussing around the tables tonight and many more times to come. It's the question, where is the Lord leading our church in 2015? I believe it's the right question. And it's very dangerous No one of us can claim definitively that we know the answer before the question is asked. We cannot be presumptuous about God's will. That's why we have been talking about the leading of the Lord, the discernment process, this time of seeking the Lord, together believing that He will show up. That's why we've invested a ton of time and a little bit of money in where we're going, because you see, it's all about stepping into the light, not darkness. It's stepping into the light because thus far we are sensing that this is the way the Lord is leading us. And so we're we're, we're stepping into the light of his revelation, his knowledge, his his direction. And and if he wants to redirect us because we're not getting it right, then we need you also to speak into that as the body of Christ. The elders of Israel had no sooner asked the question than they were on their way to Shiloh to get the Ark of God. There's no indication of pause, praise, prayer, fasting, counsel. Open up the book of the law, listen to Moses. There's no sense of discussion with the priest. They got their answer. Not surprisingly, when they arrive, guess who's on duty? We've talked about Hophni and Phinehas before. These Gangnam-style priests (laughs) that have a YOLO philosophy of life. (laughs) The swagger walks out of the tabernacle in Shiloh carrying the box. I mean, these guys are, if, if, I, if we didn't read it, if it wasn't part of the history of Israel, so very sad and wicked, we'd hardly believe it. No pause, no thought, 
no givenness to this responsibility of caring for this box, which is the, the very dwelling place of God at that time among his people. In this day, incredibly, we are now the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in the believer of Jesus Christ. But at that time, God's dwelling came down and dwelled on the top of this box between these two gold cherubs that are on the top. And inside the box, inside, are the two tablets, the stone commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain, along with this manna that, if in the time of the Israel wanderings, would, would be rotten with maggots in less than 24 hours. But in now it's in there and it's not rotting. It's all a reminder. This is the presence of God, the sustaining God that will keep you. God in a box. And so the leaders of Israel march out. The language of verse 4 is really significant. Every other time that the ark of God is used, it's sometimes just three words, ark of God. In verse 4, it seems like the editor of this portion of Scripture is trying to convey This is not just a box they're carrying out to battle. This is, as we read in verse 4, the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there. Every other incident, it's just the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. But here, it's a reminder, this is what this is. When the Ark of the Covenant is carried into the Israelite camp, there's an instant motivation factor. The, 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 the army is encouraged. This dejected group of people that had lost 4,000 men uh, bolsters their energy and they're ready to fight. And some scouts, perhaps from the Philistine camp, hear this crazy shouting going on and, and they, they, they run over, maybe take a look and they, all they can report on is that there's this box that walked into camp. We don't know what it is. It must be gods, some kind of gods. Maybe it's the gods that, that helped them overcome that superpower, Egypt. Or maybe it's the gods that sent all those plagues down on Egypt and helped them through the wilderness. We don't know, but it says in Scripture that the Philistines were in terror. They were afraid. Now, the Philistines were abs- either absolutely stupid people or incredibly courageous. Because it says in the scriptures that in response to it, they bolster one another in courage, and they say, come on, woe to us if we do not take courage. Men, stand up and fight. And and that day, they have even greater victory over Israel, and 30,000 die in the Israelite camp. Whoa. We sang a new song this morning, God is on our side. God is with us. Isn't that the song that they were singing? As they marched into the camp with the ark of God, God is on our side. God is with us. You see, you see this, I, I, I love this song. We say, I believe it. I, I sing it. But I recognize that when we when we, when we do that, we're on holy ground and it's not God according to my image. It's, it's God, the, the God of Scripture, the God that leads, not follows. The God that must be revered. The, the glorious God. Notice that in verse 7, 
The Philistines are interpreting it's a god. Verse 8, it's the mighty gods. The editor has already said, verse 4, that he's almighty God. He's the creator, the sustainer of all things, the true and living God, this set-apart God that nothing on earth can compare to, not the God in the box that they thought he was. And friends, God is so unlike anything that we know. I cannot underline this enough that, that God, he's the unguessable God. He's, he's the otherly God. He's the God that is so beyond what you think you know. He's beyond and bigger than the experience you have of the God that you, you, you are talking about. He is so greater than anything we could describe. In fact, every earthly example, every analogy that we would do where we say God is like, and then we finish the sentence, it fails to describe what he's like. Every earthly example or metaphor or illustration or simile, and all that poets try to describe in their plethora of language, everything that could be said or sung about God is just a little sliver of a description of what he's like. Who he is and what he is and how he is. And the question that we must ask is when we take off our shoes and realize we're on holy ground is, how have I put God in a box? How have I made God in my image for my purposes? I love reading, I love reading good authors from the last century that describe a spiritual condition in the church that that at that time, and, and I think to myself, I think we've slid even since then, and so maybe it even even more applicable now. So I'm thinking of A.W. Tozer, and in, in the mid-1950s, 60s in there, he wrote The Knowledge of the Holy, an incredible book. And in the book, he says this. He says, The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing, to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. The loss of the concept of the majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is, and this is it, the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external And our losses are mostly internal. And the only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them, which is the decline of the knowledge of the holy. Wow. Which leads to our third point. Israel needed a desperate recovery of the knowledge of the holy, the glory of their God. And yet, before they could actually wake up to him, his glory had departed. The Philistines capture the ark. We read about it. And in verse 18, when Eli hears about it, the mention of the ark causes Eli to fall over and die. There's a play on words here that's rather interesting. The play on words, again, when you read words in the scriptures, you have to ask, why did he put that word in there? Why is it important that Eli is a heavy man? Well, the the word in Hebrew for heavy is kabed, and the word for glory is kabod. 
And there is this play on words. In fact, the popular opinion that was in the day, perhaps is spoken in verse 19, by the daughter-in-law to Eli. And we get this understanding. The double meaning could be that, that many in Israel saw the glory of Israel all wrapped up in that man, Eli, who had led Israel for 40 years, had judged, had been the priest, the teacher, the mediator, the representative. The glory of Eli, though, in reality and God's mind, was nothing but a fat man. And it was his fatness that was responsible for his death falling over. The glory of Israel was sitting on a stool by the side of the road near Shiloh. He was a man of compromise, not conviction. He was a priest of the people, but not of God. He was a fat man of indulgence, not a lean man of spiritual acuity and discipline. And he was the reason why his sons were, they, were, were the way they were. And he was the reason why largely the glory had departed from Israel. And so in verse 19, and Eli's daughter-in-law is speaking. And, and, and it, it's this incredible picture that she attaches the glory of Israel, not just to the, the ark, but she attaches her father-in-law and her, her husband who died with the ark. Of God. And sisters and brothers, I, I think we need to ask the question, what is the singular glory of our faith? What is the singular glory of the church? And do we attach to that glory other trappings and things and as a result, we're like the people that walk into the mausoleum and, and, and we don't get to see what we thought we could see and so we leave and we don't ever really see a vision of the glory of God. What do we attach to the glory of the church? Is it the buildings? Is it the programs or the worship or the pastors or the leaders? I don't think any of those should be attached to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, now can, can Jesus be more glorified because of programs and buildings and pastors and leaders and so on? Yes. But we can do without all of those. And, and, and the, the vision, the glory of the church is still intact. Let's read again. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. As we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to be reminded now of a meal that is designed to get us back to the, the simplicity of our faith and the glory and the centrality and the singularity of our faith. And, and whatever else might be part of your faith, this is a reminder that it is the crucified, dead, buried, resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ, that, that we turn to, that we look to, that is our hope. And I invite all who are blood-bought children of God because of His death to gather around this table and I would invite the worship team and others that are leading and helping to serve the Lord's Supper to come now and join me.
I wonder if you'd put your arms out. We started the service with crown him with many crowns, and we sang it well. But in our minds, we had God still in a box. That's how we started. And we've moved a bit from that. At least we've allowed the Holy Spirit to move us a bit. And now I want to bless you. A blessing that will help you throughout this week, throughout next week, throughout this year. To help you move that box away and see only him. Oh God, you who are beyond anything we can imagine or speak about. When we meet you face to face, we'll fall flat on our face in worship and be so overwhelmed. I come to you and ask you give us the courage to let you out of that box. Break our heart of stone. Break our misconceptions and open us up to your incredible glory. Now and throughout this year, amen.